during this time that we stand before you. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I trust that you do. If you don't, there's probably a Bible on the pew there close by. Um, I would encourage you to turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17. The book of Jeremiah, chapter 17. We'd like to begin this morning by reading verses 5 through verse 8 of Jeremiah chapter 17, asking this question, where is our confidence? Where is our confidence? Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 5, thus saith the Lord, cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and he shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land and not inhabited. Verse 7, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord. And whose hope the Lord is, for he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit." In 1908, in Belfast, Ireland, there was a group of men that gathered together for the purpose of constructing a ship. The ship was going to be a very large ship, over 880 feet long. 1909, they began the construction, and finally in March of 1912, the construction was finished. The ship's name was the Titanic. The Titanic would make its maiden voyage in April of 1912 from Southampton, England to New York City. On that ship, there'd be many wealthy and rich individuals. Of course, there were some that were poor, there were immigrants that were coming to the United States. And they all had confidence in this ship and its ability to sail across the Atlantic. There were some that were on this ship so wealthy. There was a man named J.J. Anston. He was worth $187 million at the time. I mean, that's like $2.5 to $4 billion in today's world. That would get on this ship with the purpose of going across the Atlantic. The ship was recommended to have 64 lifeboats for all the passengers that would be on it. The ship was built to be able to hold 3,300 people. Only 2,200 were on this maiden voyage. But they had so much confidence in this ship, they were only supplied 20 lifeboats. There was a man, his name was Edward John Smith, 
he made this comment about the Titanic before it sailed. He said, even God himself couldn't sink the Titanic. When they began to sail, they were warned. We have record that they were warned six different times of icebergs being in the area where they were. The SS Californian actually warned them and said they had to stop sailing because their boat ship was surrounded by ice. But they continued to sail. Full speed ahead. Even God himself couldn't sink the Titanic. The ship ran into an iceberg on that night. The last record of conversation they had was around 11 p.m. 1,500, over 1,500 of the passengers died, most of them from hypothermia. You know, the water was 28 to 30 degrees. They were not able to live long in that cold water. Some in the water, some trying to get in lifeboats. It took merely two hours and 40 minutes from the time it hit the iceberg to the time the ship was completely out of sight in the Atlantic. In 1985, they found the, the wreckage almost two and a half miles below sea surface. Story has it that as the ship was going down, the orchestra on that ship was playing near my God to thee. Now I'm sure as the ship began to sail on its maiden voyage, that wasn't the orchestra's tune. But when the ship began to sink, near my God to thee. The comments of the one man that said not even God himself could sink the ship shows he had confidence in that ship. He had confidence in the workmanship. Confidence in what he'd been told? That confidence was misplaced, was it not? That was way too much confidence in a vessel floating on water. And that vessel proved that it was not worthy of that confidence. Where's our confidence this morning? Where do we put our confidence and trust? Do we put our confidence and trust in man-made ships? Does our confidence and trust stay in ships like that until the ship sinks and then finally we turn our mind and eyes to the Lord? Or even while we're on this sea of time is our mind focused on what it should be focused on? And that's the God of glory. The verses we read, Jeremiah penned these words during the time of Israel, Jerusalem, was being conquered by Babylon. And Israel, Judah, they had, they had sinned against God. They had brought this destruction upon themselves. They had backslidden away from the service of God. Sinned over and over and angered the Lord. But yet there were still some that would trust in the strength of their own hands. There was a king named Zedekiah who was the last king of Judah. He was the one that was captured outside the walls of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar's army. You know, he trusted in other things beside the Lord. He trusted in his own army strength, even trusted in Egypt. <laughs> this text says, Cursed is the man that trusteth in man, 
that maketh flesh. That's the power of carnal man, his arm. And that man that's put his trust in man and those things of man, his heart has departed. You know, to depart, you had to once be there, right? I mean, I could depart from the church house, but I had to be at the church house before I could depart from the church house, right? Whose heart departeth from the Lord. Meaning it's going away from God. And notice this, that man that trusteth in man, that maketh flesh, the strength of man, his arm, it can be seen. It's manifested. For he shall be like a heath in the desert. Wow. Dried up of spiritual things. He shall not see when good cometh. I mean, even good, he can't see it. Why? Because his head's hanging low. Flesh has let him down. But shall inhabit the parts places in the wilderness and the salt sea that is not inhabited. He'll feel like he's all alone. But notice the contrast of the man that trusteth in the Lord, whose hope the Lord is. The word hope there means his earnest expectation. You know, the word hope in the Bible is not like a wish. It's an earnest expectation. It's an earnest expectation that's based on true things and things that are fact. Notice he, he shall be as a tree planted by the waters. If you ever notice a tree that's planted by the waters, it doesn't matter how long you go without rain, it's still green, isn't it? Because it's got a water source. See, the man that's trusting in God, that's where his confidence is. See, he's got a source for water to feed him, and that's God. He spreadeth out his roots by the river. He reaches toward that water for more strength, and he shall not see when he cometh. Troubles come, hey, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. My trust is in God. But her leaf shall be green and shall not be careful, meaning overfilled with worry. In the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Jeremiah teaches us this contrast in the one that trusteth in man and the one that trusteth in God. You know, there's some people in this world you can put confidence in. But those people are the people that do trust in God whose confidence is in the Lord. Who's living in such a way as they're laboring to follow the commandments of God. But there's no one that's deserved and earned our trust and confidence more than the Lord. You know, there is a difference, and people sometimes confuse these subjects. There is a difference in forgiveness and confidence. Have you ever talked to someone, they would say, I want to forgive that person. They really let me down, and I'm really struggling. And they really didn't have any hard feelings toward the person. And they really need to be informed there's a difference in forgiveness and confidence. You know, we can forgive someone of any wrongdoing, not have any hard feelings, harshness in us toward them, but yet still not have confidence in them. You know, any statement that I make in the pulpit, that statement should be taught in the Bible. And you would say, Brother Ronnie, you've just said there's a difference in forgiveness and confidence. Prove that to me, okay? Let's go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. And the Bible says, John says this of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the confidence that we have in Him, that whatsoever we asketh of Him, He heareth us. 
Now let me ask you, what did John have to forgive Jesus of? If forgiveness and confidence is the same, what did Jesus do that needed forgiveness? Jesus never sinned. Jesus never did any wrong. Jesus is God manifested in perfect humanity. He is righteous and perfect in all his ways. But John said this is the confidence that we have in him. Why would John make that statement? He's saying that I have spent time with the Lord Three and a half years walking with him from the time of that Sea of Galilee to the time he saw him ascend back to heaven on that Mount of Olives. And he has done enough that I have confidence in him. In him. David was a man that had confidence in the Lord. In the very center of your Bible, if you split your Bible right down the middle, you're going to come pretty close there to Psalms 118. Verses 7 and 8, it is better to trust in the Lord than put confidence in man. The next verse, it is better to trust in the Lord than put confidence in princes or in government. It is better. David said, my confidence is in the Lord. David said in Psalms chapter 20 and verse 7, some trust in horses, some trust in princes. We will make mention of the name of the Lord. That's where his confidence is. Was David would say in Psalms chapter 65 and verse 5 that the Lord was the confidence of all the ends of the earth. Where's our confidence? There's a difference in confidence and forgiveness. I can forgive someone of any wrongdoing, but they could never win my confidence again, and I wouldn't be wrong. I can do something wrong as a minister of the gospel. You can forgive me, not have any harsh feelings toward me, but not have confidence in me again enough to put me in the pulpit to preach to the Lord's people, and you would not be wrong. So confidence, different than forgiveness, not the same, is also something that's, that's earned. It's earned. Confidence is not something that's just freely given. Confidence is something that's earned. If you're freely given confidence without it being earned, you're going to be let down more times than not. The Bible said confidence in an unfaithful man in a time of trouble is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. Any of you ever broke a tooth? I was at Faith Primitive Baptist Church many years ago, and I was eating, and I got in a big hurry about eating, and I actually bit the fork instead of the chicken, and I cracked the tooth. And I want to tell you, you talk about cold-sensitive until I got it fixed, I was very happy that my sister worked in a dental office and so I get that thing fixed fast. I did pull some strings on that one to get in quicker. <laughs> pain. What about a foot out of joint? Have you ever sprained your ankle and tried to walk? Wow, it's a lot of pain, is it not? Confidence in an unfaithful man in a time of trouble is like a broken tooth or a foot out of joint. It's going to cause you a lot of pain and a lot of anguish in life. Confidence is something that's earned. John said Jesus has earned our confidence. Confidence is something that can be lost. Has the Lord ever done anything to lose our confidence? You know, sometimes I get a text from church members and it stirs my mind to different subjects. I got a text this week from church members and it was about Psalms chapter 36. You know, verse 5 teaches us that the Lord's mercies they're in the heavens. His faithfulness reaches under the clouds. His righteousness is like 
great mountains. His judgments like the great deep. He preserveth the life of man and beast. And then it says this in the next verse. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. Therefore, therefore, because God has earned this, therefore the children of men put their trust in the shadow of thy wings. God has earned it and never done nothing to lose it. To have confidence in something, it must be something that's stable, right? Something stable. You don't put confidence in anything that's not stable. I was at uh, Pleasant Grove, Primitive Baptist Church, a few weeks ago, and Elder Joe Helms was telling me about a preaching appointment that he had, and they had a stage, like where they'd step up on the stage for the preachers to get on it. He said, you know, I walked around and saw that stage was held up by nothing but two two-by-fours. <laughs> he said, I thought, wow. He said, that thing could have failed at any moment. Was it stable? I asked Brother Joe, I said, how do you feel about preaching on it after you saw what it was on? He said, I didn't have too much confidence in that, Brother Ronnie. To have confidence in something, it must be something stable, right? This proven stability. What does the Bible say about the Lord? He is our rock. His work is perfect. When the Bible says He is our rock, it's not making reference to Him being just like this little gravel rock we pick up in the driveways. It's making reference to a bedrock, a huge rock that cannot be moved. How many of you ever went to Stone Mountain down in Georgia? That huge rock. You can see it from a distance. Every time I see that, I'm reminded of God being my rock that cannot, cannot be moved. He's stable. He's stable to the point he, he deserves our confidence and our trust in Him. You know, there's multiple ways we can put our confidence in the Lord. And we can be like this one Jeremiah mentions. We can have peace in our life. We can bring forth fruit no matter what season. We'll be filled with worries and troubles. You know, the Apostle Paul teaches us to be careful for nothing there in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. He's not telling us not to be concerned about anything. That's not what he's saying. He's saying don't be filled with worry and care. There's a difference in having concern and being filled with worry and care. We should be concerned. If we're not concerned about anything, we're going to be in a heap of trouble. But we shouldn't be overfilled with worry and be troubled about events around us. You know, the best way to not be over filled with worry and care? Put your confidence in God. First thing I'd like for you to consider that we should put our confidence in God for is our eternal salvation. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul is concluding his thoughts that he introduced in Romans chapter 4. Now, Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, he covers all three dispensations of time, teaching us that we've all come short of God's glory, meaning this, none of us have earned, earned anything of God. You know, the first dispensation from Adam to Moses, they failed. The second dispensation from Moses to the coming of Christ, they failed. The last dispensation of time was the gospel dispensation in our works. We failed. The Apostle Paul then directs our mind to the Lord that didn't fail. He's victorious. Chapter 4, he wants to direct the mind of the child of God to the Lord who didn't fail, that they would have assurance in them belonging to the Lord. Notice what he said in verse 1 of chapter 4. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? Now let's take out the words in the middle of those two commas. 
Because anytime you find two commas, anything outside the commas should still make a complete sentence. What shall we say then that Abraham our father hath found? Hath found, found. Someone that finds something is looking for something. Right? You don't say I found my keys when you weren't looking for your keys. If you find your keys, you were looking for your keys. Abraham was looking for something. What was Abraham looking for? What was he looking for? He was looking for himself. He was looking for righteousness in him. He was looking for assurance that he belonged to God and the promises of God were sure and steadfast. What did Abraham do? The Bible says that Abraham believed God, verse 3 of this, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, in the Bible, the words reckon, account, count, and impute can be interchangeable. I can prove that to you with this chapter, Galatians chapter 3 and James chapter 2, because the same verse of Scripture from Genesis chapter 15 is quoted, and all four of those words are going to be used. When someone is doing some accounting, counting, and reckoning, what they're doing is it's a mental a mental reckoning. What they're doing is they're doing an inventory. They're trying to find something. Find something. Trying to find the bottom line. Find trying to find the conclusion of the whole matter. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 verse 1 referred to this as justification by faith. What is justification by faith? The word justification is a legal term in the Bible. It's referring to one that has been declared righteousness. And justification is found in at least three contexts. It's found in three contexts in the Bible. One, justification by grace and blood. Two, justification by faith. Three, justification by works. Do you know there's been preachers that have wrote big commentaries that could not reconcile those three subjects? I know of a man that started a church in Germany many, 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 many years ago that was unable to reconcile James chapter 2 with Romans 5 and Romans 3 to the point that he thought James, the book of James, should not be in the canon of Scripture. I've read where he wrote it. But those three can be easily reconciled when we consider where this justification takes place. Justification, a legal term, let's think of it in, in courtrooms, okay? Courtrooms. Justification by blood and grace. Let's think about the courtroom of heaven above. Who's the judge of the courtroom of heaven above? God the Father. In the courtroom of heaven above, because Jesus Christ has shed his blood for you on the cross, died in your room instead, satisfying the only judge that mattered, which was God the Father, Jesus Christ ascended back to heaven and lives there declaring his family that he died for on the cross to be judged forever and ever and ever and ever, and as long as he lives, we'll be declared just, just as if we never sinned in glory above. That's set. Justification by faith is not about the courtroom of heaven. Remember what I said Abraham, he found something? Justification by faith is about here. You know who's the judge and jury? I am. I'm the judge and jury of myself. Now we know by the truth of Scripture, a person cannot have faith unless he's born again. Faith is not the root but the fruit of the Spirit. An apple doesn't hang in midair and finally go into a limb and go down a trunk and down into roots. No, you have a tree, life, and then you see apples that give evidence that it's an apple tree. 
Someone that's laboring to be justified by faith is a born-again child of God, and the judge and jury is in here, in here, and he's using the faith that he has in the Lord and doing some inventory of himself to come to a conclusion that what? He is a child of God himself. How many children of God do you think exist in the world today that are justified in the courts of heaven that do not have the knowledge of the Bible and the truth to be able to do a self-inventory to come to a conclusion that they are a born-again child of God? Many, many. So Paul makes reference in Romans 4 of Abraham and David. In both those texts he mentions, Abraham in Genesis 15 and David in Psalms 32, they were both already born again children of God when they were justified by faith. They took the truth, the information that God gave them, the evidence that they saw in their life, and they did a self-inventory, they themselves being the judge and jury of their own selves, and they came to a conclusion. I am a born-again child of God. I believe Jesus, God, loves me, and Jesus died for me. Now, whether they believed it or not, it did not change the fact and what happened. But by them believing it, they have peace somewhere. Where do they have peace? In heaven? No, Jesus made peace for us in heaven. This is peace in our lives, in our hearts. We have peace with God right here. Now let's read Romans chapter 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Where? In our hearts. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. By what Jesus done for us and our eyes fixed on that and the truth concerning. By whom we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The Apostle Paul there makes reference to the born again child of God seeing himself in three places. He's on earth standing. He's got faith. He's living in this temporal world. He's doing some self-inventory. But through the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace that we have, he sees himself somewhere else. Where does he see himself? He sees himself standing in heaven before God. What is our standing before the throne of God? What is the standing of every child of God that Jesus Christ died for on the cross? What's the standing? Can anything be laid to the charge of the person Jesus died for on the cross? If God the Father laid anything to your charge that's double jeopardy, God cannot be God if he does that. He would cease to be righteous. He is not an unjust judge. The standing of the children of God by what Jesus done for them on the cross is just and holy and without blame. Brothers and sisters, through the truth of Scripture, I want you to see your standing there in heaven. I want you to see what Jesus has done for you. And I want you to see and understand what's going to happen when you get to heaven, that no one's going to stop you at the door, but you'll be welcomed in glory and ushered right in to enjoy the joys of glory forever and ever, not by anything you've done, but by what Jesus done for you. I want you to see that standing. So Paul says this child of God being justified by faith, he's reckoning in his mind, he's doing a self-inventory but yet through the truth of Scripture and the knowledge of the Lord, he sees his standing there. And not only does he see his standing there, but he looks way out into the future in his hope being fulfilled and rejoices in the hope of the glory of God because he also sees himself being there, soul, body, and spirit one day in the Lord. That's justification by faith. That's assurance. You know, that assurance, that type of assurance, that confidence, that 
doesn't come by me putting confidence in a prayer that I prayed. You know, if my confidence is in a prayer that I prayed, you know, the devil is going to soon tear that down. Did I pray enough? You know, every time when I was a child and someone told me, you, you got it, but it didn't take long. I, I knew I, did, I didn't pray enough. I, there's something I missed. Well, Brother Ronnie, it's in your confession of your sin. Did I confess enough? Have, have any of us ever confessed all our sins to God? <laughs> the Bible says the thought of foolishness is sin. Wow, I mean, that gets me a couple times a day. How about you? <laughs> is, my confidence in my, is my confidence in my repentance? Have any of us really repented of all of our sin? You know what repentance is? Stopping turning and going another direction. Now, I am thankful that God has blessed me to repent of some of my sin. But I have a lot I have to repent over and over and over, over again. I make the mistake. Do you, is that, does that happen to you? Do you make a mistake and then say, I don't ever want to do that again, and a week later you find yourself doing it again? Didn't make it right, but I do it. Well, my confidence is in my prayer, my confidence in my confession, my confidence in my repentance, which are all evidences of grace. If you find someone crying unto the Lord, the Bible says the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God's not in all of his thoughts. A man that's not born again, he's not looking to God. The only person that's crying unto the Lord is the born again child of God that knows he has a father in heaven in his heart. What about my confession of sin? For me to confess my sin, I'd have to feel the guilt of my sin to want to confess it before a thrice holy God. I'm already a born again child of God. So I can't put confidence in my prayer. I can't put confidence in my confession. I can't put confidence in my repentance, which are all evidences of grace. The Bible said in Romans 2, 4, the goodness of God leadeth to repentance. I can't put confidence in my baptism, Brother Lee, to get me to heaven. I mean, the man that baptized me, was he right with the Lord when he baptized me? Was my heart perfect with the Lord? No, my baptism, again, is another evidence. Brother Lee, when you was baptized, that didn't make you a child of God. It's evidence you are a child of God. And you declare into the world, you believe what the church believes. If I put confidence in that, it's going to soon be shaken. Where's my confidence? Where's my confidence? A person that's justified by faith, that's got assurance in the Lord, his confidence is in Jesus. That's where his confidence is. That person's like this. You know, I, I know I haven't lived right. I haven't done right. I got a lot better I can do. But I believe I'm going to go to heaven one day, not because of anything I've done, but because of what Jesus done for me on the cross. He is my rock. His work is perfect. That's where my confidence is. He is my hope and my earnest expectation. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, whose hope the Lord is. Now that's hard to shake. Your brother Leonard Mooney, a good friend of mine, he's a deacon there at Faith Primitive Baptist Church. I know we've got some good deacons here at Union Grove, and I thank God for you. But I've never met up any better deacon than Brother Leonard Mooney at Faith Prayer Baptist Church. I didn't say he's better than y'all. <laughs> I say he's as good as anyone I met. Brother Leonard talked to me one day. He said, you know, Brother Ronnie, he said, I had some dreams. He said, the devil was really working on me. He said, I've been a member of the church most of my life. Primitive Baptist all his life. His father, Elder T.C. Mooney, his brother, Elder Lawrence Mooney, good Primitive Baptist preachers there in North Georgia. He said, the devil shook me up, and I just thought, well, I think I've just deceived myself in the church. I've never been a child of God. I don't know why I even get up and leave singing in the church, let church ordain me as a deacon. He said, I've been deceived. He said, you know, I got thinking. 
He said, I woke up and started thinking. I started thinking about all the evidence and grace I saw in my life and all that God had done for me. And my hope was in the cross. And I thought to myself, you know, old devil, he said, if I'm not, there ain't nothing I can do about it. He said, I'm just going to go back to sleep and just trust in the Lord. Bam! Boy, that was a good night's sleep, was it not? It's hard for the devil to shake that when your trust is in the Lord. Dear child of God, have you ever done some self-inventory of your life? Mental reckoning? Can you look back in your life? Maybe even when you was a child, you see that the Lord blessed you when you was a child. Maybe you can see, maybe when you was like four, five, six years old, you can look back and say, you know, the Lord blessed me then. Maybe you can look back in your life to a time that you saw you'd done wrong, and maybe you just thought, I need to pray and ask God to forgive me. Maybe there's a time in your life you felt nearer to God. You just felt close. You just felt Him there in your bosom. As the Shulamite would say, He lied betwixt my breast all the night. Have you ever had that happen to you? When you look back in that, you take that and you do that inventory of yourself, that would have never happened if you were not a born-again child of God. What that's saying is you are bought by the grace of God and you're heaven-bound. Why? Because what Jesus has done for you and hell, hell cannot get you. Why? Because you belong to God. Now that's assurance. That's assurance that's only experienced by putting our confidence in the Lord. But you know, we who are born again to have that confidence in the Lord, we can still be shaken and troubled by the, the events of life. And we can all be filled with worry, right? I think I'm speaking to some people that in your heart you believe you're a born again child of God. I think you have that assurance. I think you've done, as Paul would say there in Romans 4 and 5, you've done some inventory. But still, the events of life, they shake you. Things happen. In time, you think, well, I don't know what we're going to do. Well, I tell you, this is a troubled time. And brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, we're living in troublesome time. This is troubled time. I'm 52 years old. I haven't seen times like this. I mean, we're living in time of crisis. I mean, this, and it's worse than what the news is telling you. Where's our help? Well, I, my help is Washington, D.C. Well, you're making a mistake there. I think it's Ronald Reagan. He said this one time, the scariest words you could hear is someone saying, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> That's some scary words. Where's our help come from? You know, over in 2 Chronicles chapter 15, there's a, there's a king named Asa. You know, Asa was the grandson of Rehoboam, so he was the great-grandson of Solomon. Early on in his reign as king, the Ethiopians came against him. You know what Asa did? He, he put his confidence in God. God help us. There's help in the Lord where there be many or few. The next chapter, some more trouble comes to Asa. He didn't put his confidence in God. He put his confidence in men, foreign soldiers. They'll, they'll help us. They didn't help. You know what happened to Asa? He became lame on his feet. Stumbling man physically. His physical walk manifested his spiritual condition. He failed to put confidence in the Lord for his help. I remember it was Job that said this in Job chapter 31 and verse 24. He said it was not him that put confidence in, in riches and gold. Some people put confidence in riches and gold. You know, money in this world, I tell you what, it, it'll get us out of trouble. We'll put confidence in it. Well, brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, here in the United States of America, we've already surpassed our debt ceiling. The government right now, I don't think they even believe there's a debt ceiling. 
and they're trying to default on loans right now. And if that happens, our dollar is not going to be worth much. It's not worth much already. Don't put confidence in gold and in things of this world, material things. Mm-mm. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll put confidence in, in the armor that this world can provide. I remember there was a young little stripling in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Saul tried to give him some armor. And they said, I haven't proved these things. He didn't have confidence in those things. He had confidence in what God had blessed him to have confidence in. Those things that God had given him and had blessed him in using, which was nothing but his shepherd's bag and his sling. And he took five stones and he went out there and brought Goliath down. <laughs> when it comes to time of trouble, where, where's our help? What do we have confidence in? What do we turn? What do we turn? Where do we find our peace in times of trouble? You know, there in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 19, I said this in some of the preliminary comments about David. I can find you 12 times in 1 Samuel 18 and 19 where Saul of Kish tried to kill David. 12 times, 12 times. Tried to pin him to the wall with a javelin. He hated David. He hated because he knew the Lord was with him. Threw a javelin at him, tried to pin him to the wall. Put him in a hot battle and just reversed himself from it. You know, if you're wondering where David learned to do that with Uriah, remember he did that with Uriah, he learned that with Saul Kish. That's where he learned. Give him Mary of his daughter, hoping that she'd be a trouble to him. Then he finally gave, her, gave him Michelle. And she'd be a snare. Then he said, I tell you what, I'm going to require a dowry of you if you want my daughter to wife. <laughs> David didn't say he wanted her. <laughs> he said, I'm just going to give her to you. You're going to have to bring me a hundred foreskins to the Philistines, huh? That means he had to kill a hundred Philistines. God blessed him to bring back two hundred. But he was hoping he'd get killed. Let my enemies' be, hands be upon him and not mine. Saul was hoping someone else would kill David. That way he wouldn't be blamed for killing himself. 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 1, Saul got so upset he took his servants and gathered them together and said, I want David dead. I want him killed. Wow, boy, how, how about that for hatefulness? Now, he was full of hate. Telling the king's men, I want that stripling dead. What wrong has he done? Nothing. I just want him dead. I'm jealous of him. I don't feel secure in my throne. I want him dead. Well, Jonathan went and tell, told David, Saul's son, well, David's over there living in his house with Michelle. What does Saul do? He sends messengers over there. I'm going to send somebody over there to kill him. Y'all go over there and y'all kill him. Remember, it's Michelle that helped, helped David and helped him to escape. David ran. He comes to Samuel. Finally, he's up in Naoth. They sent messengers over there. Saul did kill him. Went a little further, sent more messengers. Kill him. I want him dead. Over and over and over, I want him dead. You know, David, during all that time, he wrote a psalm. It's Psalms 59. Verse 1, he makes reference to God being his defense. Verse 9, he says that God is my defense. Who am I depending on for help? They said, I depend on the Lord for my help. What about that Psalm 121 and verse 1? I will look to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from God that made heaven and earth. You know what that psalm is saying? That psalm is saying if God is able to make heaven and earth, and the Bible said he made the earth just with his fingers, you remember that psalm there in Psalms chapter, is it chapter 8? Psalm 8, verse 3, when I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and stars, the sash ordained. God made all that we see in nature. He, did, he just did it with his fingers. Do you know your salvation? God said he'd done that with his arm. Do you know God was more serious about getting you into heaven than he was making this universe? Wow, that's something, isn't it? 
That's some assurance. God got serious about getting you into heaven with him. But he just made all these things with his fingers. You know, if God can make all this with his fingers, I think he can handle it any time we're in trouble. What do you think? He can handle it. So I'll depend on God for my help in this world. When I have trouble, I'll just look to the Lord. God's able to do it. You know, I look back in time and all that God has done in helping. You know, David wrote that Psalm 34, that God's angel encampeth round about them that fear him. He protecteth them. He delivereth them. I remember in Hezekiah's day when Hezekiah turned to the Lord when the Assyrian army came there and Rebsiki gave those scathing words. Hezekiah turned to the Lord. The Lord sent one angel. One angel. What? Just one angel. And that night 185,000 of King Sennacherib's army was destroyed there in Isaiah 38. One angel. One angel did that. And the Bible says God's angels are 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands. I mean, God's got a lot of angels. I believe I can prove to you in Matthew chapter 18 that every elect child of God, every one of God's children, you have at least one guardian angel who watches over you. They're all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to them who shall be heirs of salvation, Hebrews 1.13. I would be convinced that we got more than one. And here in the house of God, I think about God's protection around us that we can trust in. Not only can we trust in God for our help, we can trust in God for our defense and guarding us. Remember there in Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 5, the Bible says that the house, the children of God, Zion, there is a wall of fire round about us. If we do what's right and stand up for what's right, we can have confidence in the protective hand of God to guard over us. And if the world were to take my life and stand up for what's right, what have they done to me? All they've done is they send me to heaven to be with the Lord that loves me. Praise God. You know, the three Hebrew children in the book of Daniel that stood against Nebuchadnezzar, stood against him, they said, we're not careful to answer these. Why? We're going to be delivered one way or another. Either God's going to deliver us from your hand in this furnace or out of this situation altogether. But God's going to deliver us. And it was God's will for them to be delivered even in the fire furnace. Nebuchadnezzar said, I thought we cast in three, but I see four walking about, and the fourth has the image of the Son of God. You know, that fiery furnace, when they were brought out of that, the Bible said the smell of smoke wouldn't even own them. All that was gone was the bindings that had them bound. That's the power of God. That's where my confidence is. Now think about Egypt when Egypt was chasing the children of Israel and they came to the Red Sea, and God parted the Red Sea, and they walked on dry land. How many of you have ever went to a pond that is broke and the water comes down? Maybe you see some catfish floating on the water. My, I remember one time my daddy's pond, the, the pipe broke and the water went down. Man, there was catfish out there just on, on some of the dry mud. And my little brother and I was going to go out there and catch them. Man, I tell you what, we sunk up to our knees quick. The Bible didn't say they walked on muddy ground. The Bible says they walked on dry land. God blew with the breath of his nostrils and the Red Sea was parted. They didn't even get their feet wet when they crossed. And Pharaoh and his army and all their pride and all their hatefulness, here they come after him. You know what the Lord did? The Lord took the wheels off the chariot. <laughs> the wheels went off the chariot and they were stuck there in the Red Sea. And when all the children of Israel on the other side, they looked back and God closed up the Red Sea on all that great army. And the Bible teaches us when they saw Pharaoh and his army all dead, God had killed all their enemies, they began to sing to the Lord, victory. God is my defense. 
God is my help. God is my confidence. Another thing we have confidence in, the Lord is, is Him coming, getting us, and taking us out of His work. You know, Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3 that there would come people in the last days saying, Where's the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. You know what these people are? They're uniformitarians. There's some things that just went on just like they were. You ever talk to someone that's uniformitarian? You know what uniformitarians usually are? Evolutionists. That's what they are. You know, the world is trillions and trillions of years old because everything's just like it was this year, last year, year before. You know, and we think about the, the Grand Canyon, the Colorado River. The Colorado River moves so much earth and erosion so much a year, and the Grand Canyon is this deep. Therefore, we conclude that the United States of America, that land, it's got to be three trillion years old, you know, because it's got to be the same. <laughs> I, I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, there's not enough water in the Colorado River to cut the Grand Canyon. It's not there. But there is enough water in the Pacific Ocean. And when all the floods, waters went back to their place. You remember when the flood happened, water came from three different places. The canopy that was around the earth, the earth was like a greenhouse, it fell. Rain fell from heaven and the fountains broke up from the deep and the earth was flooded with water. Someone would say, well, there's not enough moisture on the earth to flood the earth. Not now, but there was then. <laughs> there was then. But they'll look at that depth of that Grand Canyon and they'll say, well, the earth's got to be three trillion years old. And that's a uniform terrorist. The Bible teaches catastrophe, that we've had catastrophes in time that's done this damage on the earth. You remember Mount St. Helens when it erupted? All those ravines were cut, all that damage that was done. Boy, you didn't hear those folks talking about that, did you? Remember Searcy Island? Look up Searcy Island. You know, when it first appeared there close to Iceland, everybody was like, well, now in a thousand years we'll be able to have some plant life. Well, let's plant bird life on that island just in a, just in a little while. Oh, we don't want to talk about that anymore. They put that on the back, back page. It disproves their hypothesis. And by the way, a theory is something proven. A hypothesis sometimes just an idea somebody has. I had a man come in the little hardware store I worked in one day, and he said, you know, I got a rock at home, Ronnie. That rock is 3.3 trillion years old. I said, no, you don't. <laughs> he was kind of offended when I disagreed with him. I said, no, you don't. He said, yes, I do. I said, how do you know? He said, oh, I did a test on it. I said, yeah, and I said, they did three tests, right? I said, what was the range of that test? Oh, he said, one was like 2 billion, the other is 3.3 tree, and the other is 3.9 tree. And I said, do you realize the broadness of that? <laughs> you, I said, does that sound like accuracy to you? I mean, if we were in a shooting range and I had that kind of accuracy, you wouldn't have to worry about nobody standing behind. I mean, they'd be getting out of the way. I mean, that's a pretty broad test. Now, Peter said there's going to be people saying all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. He said, this we know by the word of the Lord, that the heavens and the earth were of old. God made a mature earth. You know, God didn't tell Adam, go over and plant a tree. You know, there's a tree there. When God made Adam, he made him upright. Adam was probably like a 30-year-old man, upright. Eve was an upright person when God made him. Yeah, the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. He said, the heavens and earth, which are now, are by the same word, the same power that did that, Kept in store, reserved into fire against the day of judgment for the ungodly men. When is that going to happen? When the last child of God is born again. That's when it's going to happen. You remember in the days of Noah when God told him he's going to destroy the earth with water? You know how long it was from the time he told him to the time it actually happened? The next day, 120 years later. 
Noah told them, this is coming. Noah told his family. He comforted his family, his three sons and their wife and his wife. It's coming. They built that ark and labored building that ark. Building that ark, building that ark, building that ark. Don't you know people are like, what are you doing? He's kept on working. Kept on working. Why? Because he believed God. You know what happened? God finally came in that flood. You know, here in this world, dear children of God, the Lord's coming. He's coming back. He's going to come back. You know why? Same way Noah, he promised Noah it was going to happen. When God makes a promise, it's going to, it's going to happen. During this and me waiting, I want to wait on the coming of the Lord, laboring in service to him, but he's coming. I believe he's coming. Someone says, why do you believe he's coming back to take us out of this world, Brother Ryan? He said he was. God can't lie. Jesus said he was coming back, and I have confidence in God that he's going to come back. Elder Raven Lord. Sometimes I call him the Prince of Preachers in Georgia. Yeah, brother Raven, he's just uh, it's a precious brother. I remember hearing Brother Raven preach, and I tell you what, I, I felt like I could just go to heaven. Just any moment listen to him preach. And I want to tell you, everybody love Brother Raven. And Brother Raven get away with a lot more than the rest of us preachers in Georgia could because everybody loved him. You know, Brother Raven's first wife, Sister Jean, you know, she died, and Brother Raven married Elder E.D. Bryant's widow, Sister Ginger, a little later. I remember Brother Raven was talking about heaven in the pulpit, and he said, you know, there ain't going to be no fighting in heaven. He said, because I just couldn't bear the thought of Sister Jean and Sister Ginger fighting over me in heaven. And I thought, man, Brother Raven, if that was me, they'd run me out on the rail. But everybody's just crying amen to him. <laughs> Brother Raven was talking about our confidence in God and him coming back to get us. He said this. He said, I remember my daddy one time dropped me off at a barbershop. Brother Ben dropped him off at the barbershop, and he said, I got my hair cut. And he said, the barber said, Brother Raven, I think your daddy forgot about you. He said, uh, I can get you a ride home. He said, no. He said, my daddy's going to come back and get you. It's all right. He said, a little more time passed by, and he said, Brother Raven, I think your daddy forgot about you. He said, I can just drive you home right away. He said, no, it's okay. He's going to come and get you. He said, three or four times he did that. And he said, why do you believe he's... He said, he told me he's going to do it. My daddy won't lie to me. Now, Brother Raven had that much confidence in his daddy. How much more confidence should we have in Jesus what did he say there in John chapter 14, verse 1? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare or provide a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again unto you and receive you unto myself. And where I am, there you may be also. You know, dear children of God, our best days are yet to come. Now, this is as good as it's going to get here on earth in heaven. Heaven on earth. This is in the house of God. This is as good as it's going to get. In the kingdom of God, this is like a heaven on earth. Just a little bit of heaven right now. A little bit. But our best days are yet to come. You know when our best days are going to be? We're all with Jesus in heaven. Brother Ronnie, why do you believe that so much? That's what Jesus told me. See, my father can't lie to me. Jesus can't lie. He told me that. And you know, because I believe it's going to be good in the end, you know, I'm able to tolerate some of the bad right now. Just having confidence in Him. And when our confidence is in Him, we can have peace, we can have joy, we can have happiness. May God richly bless us our prayer. Is anyone here this morning would like to come forward and ask for a home here at Union Grove Primitive Baptist Church? I'd like to encourage you to do so while we stand and sing hymn number Brother John. <laughs>